All right, we have a red light, so here we are. Today's topic is actually part two. We started talking about historical perspectives in abnormal psychology. So this is Psych 213, Abnormal Psychology. We're still in chapter two. We're going to do the second part of that right now, and that's what we're going to have in this recording. So we talked about the two previous models um, of historically how we looked at abnormal behavior. Remember, the first model was what? You guys are so quiet. Like you can tell it's a Monday. So I'll let you off the hook. Demonology, right? So again, this idea that evil spirits or some supernatural power or something like that has affected your behavior and made you abnormal in some way. The second set of models that we looked at were organic models, that it was some kind of organic perspective. And remember how, interestingly, in time, those models have shifted in and out of favor depending upon like, you know, kind of what culture is um, taking the lead, so to speak, or what perspective is taking the lead. So the third historical perspective is the one we're going to talk about today, and this one is the psychological view. It's the view that psychological events, like personal experiences, beliefs, emotions, ideas, all those kinds of things, it's the idea that they might cause abnormal behavior if you know, again, something happens, something psychological. And the two different kind of approaches that they looked at was one, the study of hysteria and hypnosis, and the other one was animal learning. So I'll just let you in on a little piece. The study of, of hysteria and hypnosis is that maybe some unconscious force has influenced you, all right? And then the animal learning, that's really the start of behaviorism, what we believe, you know, one of the models we believe today. Now, when we get to chapter three, we'll start talking about contemporary views. So, just so you know. So, let's go ahead and look at the study of hysteria. So, we can study hysteria. What is hysteria? Well, it's uncontrolled emotional outbursts of weeping, laughter, or any other inappropriate behaviors. So, you go, why are you laughing? This isn't funny. Or, why are you kind of hysterical when this isn't that bad? Um, certain altered states of consciousness, hysteria, that's the other thing, is you can have people alter their states of consciousness. And then a host of changeable, this is the key word, they're changeable. They're not, if you had a bad knee, your knee hurt, it would always be your bad knee. But no, no, these are changeable bodily complaints and symptoms, like paralysis, that comes and then goes and goes somewhere else. Muscular contractions and defects in hearing and vision when there's no physical reason for it. So if there's no physical reason, the organic model doesn't work. We could go back to demonology, but these are individuals who thought, no, it's not some kind of evil spirit. There's something else. And so that's what we're looking at here is the something else. And here's the key. These symptoms have no identifiable organic basis. We can't find the cause, the trigger. So Antoine Mesmer, let's talk about him. See his birth date there, 1734 through 1815. He was a physician. Um, he was in Europe. He was influenced by astrological and pseudoscience beliefs at the time. You know, sometimes we, we believe, you know, fake, we talk about fake news here in the United States. Sometimes there's fake science. You think it's real science, but it's really fake science. 
and we call that pseudoscience. And um, really, that's always been around. There's always been someone who, oh, the world is flat. And if we keep traveling, we're going to fall off the end. Yeah, but we know that's not true, right? So, again, at the time, that's what he was influenced in, Antoine Francis Mesmer. Francis is his middle name. Um, he believed that all human behavior was under the influence of the stars, astrological, okay, um, which was accomplished uh, through a constant flow of magnetic fluid that fills the universe. So some kind of connection we have with the moon. Remember that we, we've talked in another class, in my Psych 101 class, we talked about what's called illusionary, illusionary um, correlations, Illusionary correlations are correlations, relationships between variables that seem to be there, but there's no evidence for it, no matter how many studies we do. And believe it or not, the one that I know, if you work in healthcare, you'll argue with me, but there is no scientific evidence that the moon cycles affect behavior. Oh, I know, I know you want to just take my knees out from underneath me and go, wait, when I work in healthcare, those folks are different when there's a full moon. Now, I'm going to tell you, those folks are different, period. But when you walk outside and see the full moon, you go, that's it. That's why they're odd today. Full moon explanation. We're done. So we think, you know, like back in the day, it seems so silly to believe that we'd be influenced by the stars and some kind of magnetic fluid. Well, hell, we believe we're there are people today who believe that the moon affects us. Forty plus studies have been done on lunar cycles and behavior. 40 plus studies. And none of them have conclusive evidence that the moon affects our behavior. Just saying. Just throwing it out there. So here's this idea. Seems kind of odd. We all have this magnetic flow filling the universe around us and we're influenced by it. Physical symptoms developed because the distribution of magnetic fluid became unbalanced in a person. So, and if, if we go back to Greco-Roman times, remember the four humors of the body? Black bile, yellow bile, right? And there was the belief that if you were acting odd, one of your fluids was unbalanced. So this isn't too far from, you know, even organic thinking, but it just goes that extra step into the stars in the universe. All right? Antoine Mesmer believed that you could heal people and the way that you healed people was by producing or permitting a flow of magnetic fluid into or out of the person and a magnetizer or healer would be the person responsible for that. So he believed he had this power of magnetism that he could change the flow of magnetic flow in and out of a person's body and then get them more balanced so they were fine. Mesmer developed a theatrical style of treatment. He was kind of a showman. He liked to put on a big ta-da. By the way, he also had people, um, it's not really in this PowerPoint, I don't believe, but he had people um, lay down in baths of water with magnets in them, you know, magnetic baths. He believed that animals had a magnetism too, animal magnetism. So again, we all have this idea. That's what attracts us. That's what pushes us away. Um, Anyway, he developed this real theatrical, he, you know, you come to him, he gets up on stage, he heals you, he lays hands. Um, 
Benjamin Franklin and other great thinkers of the time were fascinated by this treatment. They wanted to know more about it. Um, Benjamin Franklin traveled from the United States over to see him, and he was one of the, the group of scientific thinkers who actually is kind of credited with discrediting him in 18, uh, or 1784, and they said that, quote, imagination without magnetism produces convulsions, and that magnetism without imagination produces nothing. So in other words, the key part is imagination, something psychological. I'm imagining being blind. I'm imagining not feeling my hand. It's something else. So believe it or not, um, Antoine Mesmer died discredited and poor as a physician. But I like to always talk full circle. Do you know that today one of the approaches to treating depression is called or transcranial magnetic stimulation, where they focus a specific magnetic field into a specific area of the brain, and it seems to reduce depression. Maybe Antoine was just a little ahead of his time, just a little off. Just saying. Just throwing it out there. Anyway, so mesmerism, Antoine Mesmer, mesmerism, you've mesmerized me, right, became a popular term for the procedures used to induce these trances and other altered states of consciousness. So essentially, putting you into a hypnotic state. So that's what's happening there in the 1700s, right? We've got uh, Jean-Martin uh, Charcart, and um, he's from 1825 to 1893. So now we're starting to get up into, you know, the 19, close to the 1900s, Freud's around. He was a distinguished French neurologist and was largely responsible for making hysteria and hypnosis respectable objects of scientific investigation. I think, my, this is my humble opinion, that part of the reason why hypnotherapy is still a little bit looked at as kind of pseudo-scientific is because of Antoine Mesmer. I think the impact of, of him in history has, has greatly changed the perception of hypnosis and things like that. But that's my opinion. All right? So here's what Jean Martin found. He found a puzzling but significant fact about hysteria was that the almost unlimited variety of symptoms. So it could be anything. You could have grand hysteria. You could have disturbances in sensory perception, anesthesia, hematesthesia, glove anesthesia. So this paralysis, this inability to, to kind of feel or touch or move right? Blindness, deafness, with no physical reason, and then it would change to some other symptom. Hysterical pains, an inability to walk, selective defects, like maybe you can't write, but you can eat. So you can hold a fork, but you can't hold a pencil. I know you're giving me that puzzled look, right? I'm with you, right? La belle indifference, what does that mean? That means that here are symptoms that people would, any normal person, if you lost vision, you would be so upset. And yet these folks seem to suffer and didn't seem to care. 
That's what la bella indifference means. It means that they didn't seem to give a crap. It didn't matter to them that they couldn't see. So again, this was puzzling. Um, Charcot recognized that individuals with hysteria rarely hurt themselves when their symptoms overtook themselves. So there was a little bit of sanity somewhere in the insanity, if you want to think of it that way. They're not hurting themselves. There was a disappearance of the affliction under chloroform. So I could put someone under chloroform, make them go to sleep, it would go away, but not under ordinary sleep. So there has to be some conscious or psychological connection. That's what they were trying to get at. And the individual with hysteria had normal reflexes, a sudden onset, and occasionally a sudden disappearance. And then finally, one of the things he recognized was the effects on the body were such that no known organic lesion or disease process could produce these symptoms. So he's a neurologist, he's studying the brain, of course, his understanding of the brain, our understanding today, two different things, but still, that's his training, and he said, there's nothing producing this, this has to be within the mind. He suspected the symptoms were produced by auto-suggestion, similar to self-hypnosis. So imagine you become overwhelmed by some anxiety or stress, and then you convince yourself you can't see so you don't have to look at it. Or you can't write so you don't have to write about it. So it almost gets you out of responsibility for it. He found that he could use hypnosis to produce new symptoms at will and relieve existing symptoms, at least in some patients. Now, it didn't work in all, but it worked in some. And others found hysterical symptoms could be induced through hypnosis in subjects with no previous history of hysteria. So there were other people researching this too, and they were like, oh, you know what? We can produce symptoms in people who have never had a complaint. So this just gave more weight that, hey, this is some type of auto-suggestion, some type of, of hypnosis or unconscious process that seems to be taking you know, hold here. So that's kind of the underpinnings of the hysterical research when you take a look at it, or research on hysteria, is that again, pretty fascinating stuff. Now remember the second line in this psychological area is the animal testing. So let's take a look at that, right? So the second path of investigation derived from animal experiments on how behavior was affected by experience. And the two famous people in history that we're going to talk about, Ivan Pavlov, Edward Thorndike. Remember, as I told you guys before, these folks are not psychologists. This is prior to psychology existing. Edward Thorndike came about, you know, notice 1874, first lab 1879. So maybe he was a psychologist. We'll run with that. But Ivan Pavlov was not a psychologist. Biologist studying digestion. So, Ivan Pavlov, 1849-1936, Edward Thorndike, 1874-1949. So let's go ahead and take a look. Ivan Pavlov is first up, Russian physiologist who won a Nobel Prize. That's how good he was. He won a Nobel Prize in physiology for his work on digestion. And yet, he gave up that to look more at 
classical conditioning. Prover or we call it uh, Pallovian uh, conditioning. It's another way of saying classical conditioning. So here's a picture, it's a drawing of a dog in a contraption, an apparatus similar to what Pavlov would have used, right? So you can see the dog standing here. He's got a harness holding him in place, a wooden frame over top of it, right? Here's a bowl of food right in front of the dog in this picture. And he's got a tube, the dog has a tube, kind of, I hate to use the term, but spliced into its mouth so that it wouldn't come out. And its goal was to collect saliva drops. So it's got this tube, it drips down, and a recorder to record how much saliva is in the container, and then they're going to track it over time. Right? It's kind of interesting apparatus, if you will. What Pavlov noticed is that his dogs came to salivate before the meat powder was delivered to the mouth. So the dogs would start to salivate before they ate, before they even saw the food. In fact, Look, apparently at the site of the laboratory workers engaged in the study. As soon as the workers showed up, they started to drool. Didn't he use like noise too? Like there was a noise. He was going to pair it together. He wanted to know, can I make it? What, how, and I'll use the term association. How did an association form between something that's automatic, not something within your control? Like, can you drool on command? No, no one can, right? You can't work up, the more you try to work up saliva, the drier your mouth gets. So you can't voluntarily do that. It's an involuntary behavior. So how did this involuntary behavior of salivation occur to a lab coat that should never cause that? Association, like right? whenever he would ring the bell um, mm -hmm. and the food would be there, if he right. rang the bell and there wasn't food, he would still, the dog would still salivate. Well, not at first. After a while. After a while. That's the key. After a while, the dog would, but at first it wouldn't. So here's what he did. He undertook a series of experiments to understand the nature of this. He called it a psychic reflex. So even he knew that there was something in the mind going on creating this. A psychic reflex, right? And his work had a profound effect on psychology. That's why we've adopted him into our field. So, Pallovian or classical conditioning, here's the process, right? Now, I don't necessarily like the boxes that your textbook uses, but I'm using them here in the PowerPoint just for consistency's sake. Um, so, what we have here is we've got a U, usually it's called UCS, a US, the unconditioned stimulus. The unconditioned stimulus, that's why it's called UCS normally, unconditioned stimulus. The unconditioned stimulus is the stimulus that doesn't have to be learned. It's an automatic stimulus. So for a dog, what is the automatic stimulus? We're going to study it's drooling at food. What is the automatic stimulus, the thing the dog doesn't have to learn that's important to it? Food this is the unconditioned stimulus. It stimulates digestion, stimulates salivation. Got where I'm going with this? So the unconditioned stimulus is meat powder or meat or food, right? It automatically, as soon as food is present, what is going to happen in the dog? 
going to salivate, right? It's going to drool. So the unconditioned response, unlearned, it's automatic. The unlearned response is salivation. I put meat in front of a dog, it's going to drool. The U.S. with the U.R. Automatic. Then we have what's called a CS, but before the CS even comes into play, we call it an NS, a neutral stimulus. It does nothing. It stimulates nothing. The bell means nothing to the dog. The dog could care less. Ring the bell, it's going to lick itself. It doesn't care. Right? But that neutral stimulus is going to come to, pre to become a stimulus. So what do I do? I pair the neutral stimulus that does nothing with the unconditioned stimulus that is automatically going to create what? The unconditioned response. So I pair those two things together, the neutral stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus. Because as soon as meat powder is present, the unconditioned response is going to happen. And if I associate or pair those two things together enough times, eventually I play the bell that becomes a conditioned stimulus, a learned stimulus. And the learned stimulus produces on its own a conditioned response, a learned response, an automatic response. And that's what he found. Does that kind of make sense? And the conditioned response and the unconditioned response are the same thing. It's salivation. It's just what caused it. Was it a conditioned stimulus or an unconditioned stimulus? So again, it's the terminology. If you have questions, please swing by my office. We can talk more about it. Some of this should be a little bit of a review from Psych 101. I think that if you listen to the audio recording for Psych 101, I do a little bit better job of explaining it. But for today, it is what it is. So terminology, here we go. Here's our terminology again, unconditioned stimulus, U-S, or sometimes called U-C-S, a stimulus that is naturally capable of eliciting a unconditioned response. Now, you might go, the language seems odd, elicit a response, what, what does he, remember this is a physiologist, this is a, a biologist from Russia. Right? This was translated. So he's going to use terms from physiology, not necessarily terms from psychology. We have the unconditioned response. UR, or sometimes called UCR, is a response that occurs naturally or innately to an unconditioned stimulus. It automatically is there. Meet, drool. The neutral stimulus, the NS, is a stimulus that naturally produces no response, naturally does nothing to the beginning. It later becomes what's called the conditioned stimulus, the CS, originally neutral stimulus that becomes capable of eliciting a conditioned response after repeated pairings with an unconditioned stimulus. And then the final term, this conditioned response, that's the response that's produced, right? The response that is elicited by conditioned stimulus after repeated pairings with the unconditioned stimulus. So it sounds kind of wonky, but once you get the hang of it, and it all seems to fall into place. 
So in Pavlov's study, here's what we have. The meat powder is called the unconditioned or stimulus. Salivation produced is the unconditioned response. The neutral stimulus, in this case, a bell or even a light. He could do it not just to sound, but also to vision, right? Would eventually be called the conditioned stimulus. And the response of salivation to the conditioned stimulus is called the conditioned response. So again, I know that I've kind of beat you up with the terms, but I want you to really try to get a grasp on the terminology here. Really what Pavlov found was a form of learning, simple, simple learning. He called it conditioning, but I want you, whenever you hear the word conditioning in this class, in any psych class, when you hear the word conditioning, think learning, because that's really what we're talking about. So learning is the acquisition of the association between the CS and the UCS. Learning. You form an association. This is called learning by association. You form an association, and then something happens. Notice that the association happens first, and then the response. You have to condition the stimulus first, and then you get the response. This is going to be different than another approach that we're going to use. Edward Thorndike didn't find it in that order. Pavlov found learning happens first, that it's involuntary behaviors that are learned, and it's learning by association. Pair two things together, you make the association in your head, you then respond afterwards. So the response comes after the learning. Extinction, he, remember, he's a biologist, a physiologist, so he's going to use terms from biology that, again, in psychology seem a little odd, but we have to understand their origins. He talked about extinction. Extinction is a process in which repeated presentations of the conditioned stimulus without the unconditioned stimulus eventually weakens the response. So here's the deal. Every time you present your dog food, you're wearing a blue, a blue jacket. We'll just say for sake of argument, right? Every time you wear, you present the dog food, you're wearing a blue jacket. After a while, just showing up in the blue jacket causes the dog to what? Drool. But if you don't pair, in other words, if you don't keep feeding the dog when you wear your blue jacket, if you don't keep that association fresh, over time it fades away, it becomes extinct. It goes away, it weakens because it's not reassociated. We need to at least occasionally reassociate it for it to stay strong. My daughter, when she was younger, she wanted money for grades. She got an A, she got money, right? Well, it sounded like a great idea. My wife wanted to give her like $5 for every A. Well, then she started rolling home with tons of A's. We started going broke. So then we didn't give her $5 every time she brought home an A. In fact, what happened was we stopped giving her $5 at all because she was breaking the bank. Well, then the A's stopped coming quite as often because she wasn't getting, you know, there wasn't any kind of association, if you will. Now, it's a different kind of learning. Actually, I've gone into Edward Thorndike's approach. We'll talk about that in a minute. But again, it's just this idea of associating two things together, and then all of a sudden... If you don't keep doing it, over time it fades.
So you can see a typical learning curve, right? So again, how many trials does it take for the dog to learn that? And in an, another uh, class, I, I talk about it. It took eight trials for a dog to start to salivate about eight drops of saliva when there was no drops of saliva before. Eight pairings between a bell and food. And the dog would start to salivate at the sound of the bell alone after only eight pairings. So fast, simple learning. Then you can see extinction on the far side. Here, we're not going to associate those things on a regular basis. And what ends up happening is it fades, it fades, it fades. Now, the minute that I reassociate, the minute that, again, I start doing it again, it's going to jump. It won't take eight times this time. The dog will, quote unquote, relearn the association in about four tries. So what Pavlov believed was that you never unlearned anything it just became extinct. It was still there. It just wasn't showing itself. And then in a short amount of time, you could reestablish that association. So just letting you know, that's kind of, uh, just to kind of give you an idea. Now, two other processes were evident as the result of conditioning. One is called stimulus generalization, and the other one's called stimulus discrimination. And Pavlov believed that most, if not all, human behavior could be analyzed and explained in terms of innate responses you're born with, innate, and acquired reflexes. Remember, he's looking at reflexes. Digestion is a reflex. It's not an automatic problem. You don't force your stomach to digest food. It just happens. So he believed everything was based on born innate reflexes and then acquired reflexes over time. So let's talk about discrimination or stimulus uh, generalization and discrimination. All right. So stimulus generalization is where one stimulus that's similar to another starts to also elicit that response. So maybe the dog learned to um, salivate at the sound of a bell. A chime goes off that's pretty close to a bell, and eventually the dog starts to salivate to the chime, but it never learned the chime to begin with. It's just another sound that's very similar. So it generalized. Maybe you're afraid of, you got bit by Doberman, and you were afraid of Dobermans, but now you're afraid of all dogs. Generalized to all dogs. Stimulus discrimination means that you can tell the difference between the stimuli. And here's a really interesting study by one of Pavlov's students. So I'm going to try to pronounce her name. I'm going to do a terrible job. I apologize for that, right? But Schenger Krustonovic, I don't know. Anyway, something like that, right? Um, if you're listening to the recording, you want to know what the name is, send me an email. I'll send you the name. Spell it out for you. Make it easier that way. So anyway, here's what happened. She was fascinated by this. So she actually was able to create, dig this, acute symptoms of neurosis. She was able to make a dog, quote unquote, crazy by messing with the stimuli it saw. So here's what she did, right? First, what she did was she trained dogs to, to salivate when presented with a circle on a card. 
So when you would hold up the circle with a card, you know, the card with a circle on it, the dogs would start to salivate. She associated the two together. She'd always hold up the card with a circle when she gave the dogs food. Dogs with this, you know, gave the dogs food, card with a circle, gave the dogs food, card with a circle. Eventually, the dogs would salivate to just the circle. But the dogs also salivated to ellipses. They were kind of circle-like, but they weren't quite circles. So that means that the stimulus generalized to other similar features. So she wanted to narrow down the range of responses. So what she did was she trained the dogs to discriminate the circle from the ellipse. She would only pair the food with a circle. She would show a card of an ellipse and would never give food with it. Every time she showed the card with the circle, she would give food. Now the dog has figured out that it's only the circle, not the ellipse, that gives the food. Following me. Here's where it gets freaky. Right? She then faced them with a discrimination task. Right? So if you take a look at the features that are up here, so you have A is the circle, B is the ellipse that she showed. So it's a pretty, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big ellipse, right? And then C is a circle that's kind of elliptical. It's a little smaller than the original circle, but it's also a little bit more elliptic. And then the fourth one is even more. So what she did was when she presented the dogs with these very similar stimuli, but not quite the same, that were blending of the two stimuli that the dog had learned to separate, Here's what she reported. This is a quote. The dog, quote, began to squeal in its stand, kept wriggling about, tore off it, the apparatus with its teeth, a behavior which had never happened before. And on being taken into the experimental room, the dog now barked violently. So, the dog developed a neurosis, some kind of negative response when it was presented with these stimuli that were confusing to the dog. And Pavlov thought, oh my goodness, wonder if when we get confused about stimuli, maybe that's what makes us neurotic. Anxious, overwhelmed, some kind of psychic stress. So that's Pavlov's research, and that kind of left some question marks, which of course further researchers are going to look at. Let's switch our, our gears to Edward Thorndike. So here's Edward Thorndike in the late 1890s. Remember that the labs are now starting up across the Europe and the United States, psychology labs. Thorndike began studying the process whereby cats, Pavlov worked with dogs, Thorndike worked with cats where cats learn to escape from a puzzle box. So here's a picture drawing of a puzzle box down here. And somehow he trained them so that there was a way they could step on. You can't really see it very well in the picture. But there's a lever in there, like a foot pedal. And it's got a string that comes up across the pulleys at the top. And so he would train the cats to step on the pulley, on the, on the, pat, on the, hand, on the, the foot pedal, which would then cause the pulley to open up so the cat could run out. So cats be slowly became more adept at the required response, taking less and less time to get out of the puzzle box on successions. 
So maybe it's standing around the puzzle box and it's walking around. It just so happens by accident it hit that lever and the door opens up and the cat runs out. We throw the cat back in the box again. It's walking around the box. Again, it by accident hits this lever and the door opens up. Well, now the cat's going to hang out near that lever. It hasn't figured out that it's, it's stepping on the lever that makes it work, but it knows in that general area. And then the cat would step on it, and now the cat would, you'd throw it in, it would immediately step on it to get back out again. It made an associate, kind of like what Pavlov talked about, but here's the difference. In Pavlov's conditioning and Pavlov's learning, an association is formed and then the response. Got it? And it's involuntary behavior. An association is formed, then the response. Meat powder and the bell are joined together, and then the dog salivates. Here, the cat is doing a voluntary behavior. It's walking around a puzzle box. It steps on something. It does the response first. And then if it gets a good outcome, it's going to do it again. And if it gets a good outcome, it's going to do it again. Now, if it had put its paw on that lever and it got shocked and it had a negative outcome, then it's going to be less likely to put its paw on the lever. So the learning happens after the behavior. It's the opposite of what Pavlovian learning is. Pavlovian, the learning happens first, then the behavior here. The behavior happens first then you learn whether it's good or bad or not, and then decide to repeat it. So I'm just trying to drive that home so you get a feel for why do we talk about both of these folks? Well, because they're, yes, they're both behaviorists, and yes, they're both the underpinnings of behavioral psychology approaches today, but they look at learning from a different perspective. So 1911, Thorndike formulated what's called the law of effect. And here's what it said. When a behavior is followed by a satisfying consequence, it's more likely to be repeated. When it's followed by a punishing or annoying consequence, it's less likely to occur. So in classical conditioning, we call it learning by association. Here, we call it learning by consequence. Police officer pulls you over on your way into class today. Walks up to the window and you tell him to screw off, which is an, an insult here in the United States, right? So you say, screw off, jerk. Don't be surprised when the cop like gives you more of a hassle than he did originally. They were just gonna give you a warning. Your taillight's out. Now you're getting a ticket for a taillight out, not wearing your seatbelt, speeding in a slow zone. They throw the book at you. Does this happen in real life? Yes. Hell yeah. Cop walks up to you. Police officer pulls you over for speeding. He walks up to the window. You start crying like a baby. Oh, please don't. I'm on my way to Bailey's class. You don't freaking understand. Right? The cop feels bad for you because he's like, yeah, I know Bailey. He's got a reputation. See it all the time. Be safe. And sends you on your way. What are the chances you're going to cry again when a cop pulls you over? Pretty good, right? You're definitely not going to talk bad to the cop. 
that's going to be a different outcome. So again, the, you choose the behavior and then it's the outcome. So this learning process emphasized the consequence that followed the response. And so that's why we call this, instead of classical conditioning, we call it operant conditioning. Think of it this way. I operate, I act on my environment, and then I learn. So just so you, you kind of get that. So Thorndike viewed the law of effect as a process of selection. Remember, Darwin's around during these times. This is fascinating stuff. Well, this is selection. The environment selected effective responses by the positive outcomes those responses produced. In other words, you're going to do things that benefit you. You're going to act in ways that help you. If you do something that doesn't help you, you're not going to do it. It doesn't benefit you or your species. You're only going to do it if, it if there's a gain from it, a good gain. So that's very much selection. But it's the environment that determines what's good and what is bad. If in this environment, every time you raise your hand, I bite your head off, I yell at you, you're not going to raise your hand in this environment. But in another environment, you may choose to do so. And if you do, then you might have a different outcome. Or if you have the same outcome, you're going to be less likely to raise your hand in any class. Again, over time, it's reinforced, it's strengthened, right? So Thorndike saw the similarity between Darwin's concept of natural selection of physical attributes and his view of learning as environmental selection. Thorndike considered that the consequences changed the behavior, so neural connections in the brain were also changed. He actually went so far as to say there were connections in the brain and when you had a change in your behavior, it made changes there. This was the foreshadowing of neuroscience today. All from the study of cats. Dig that. So we're at the end of this PowerPoint. These were the historical perspectives. Remember the three, demonology, an organic cause or trigger, and a psychological cause. So this is the end of chapter two. At the end of this PowerPoint, you see there's links to three different videos just to kind of further give you uh, just some stuff to think about, how to train the brain by using learning, mental disorders as brain disorders, just some, some perspectives on that, and the treatment of the mentally ill throughout history. We have not always treated people very kindly throughout the history of mental illness. So again, just some supportive videos for you to consider. Any questions about this material? All right, for those of you at home, thanks for listening.